Well, as you know, we've taken a bit of a break in our study of Romans here before Christmas season to uh, look at the life of Christ from back to front by looking at the cross to prepare to understand his virgin conception and his miraculous birth. So we've chosen to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 to orient our thoughts. Take your Bibles and turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We began this passage last week and we'll complete it, this little paragraph at least, this week. Let me read that for you just so it's fresh in your mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18 Paul writes, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we, we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We live in a unique time in the history of thought and Many have classified it as postmodern. Some have called it post-postmodern. At the heart of the thinking today is this endless, incurable idea of tolerance between ideologies. In other words, it's uncouth to be critical of any ideology because no one can really know for sure who's right and who's wrong. And I think that's the result of the disillusionment that science has left us with. No matter how far we look out into the galaxies with our telescopes, no matter how deep we look into the subatomic particles with a microscope, the answers to life's most penetrating questions simply have not been found through scientific research. So... Really, the verdict of postmodernism is this. Science, and particularly man's reason, man's ideologies, his philosophies, his mental capabilities, has been crowned Lord of all without giving us any answers. It's an interesting kind of cycle. I find it interesting, though, that Christianity, for the most part, has been left out of the rules of tolerance In fact, our society is growing less, increasingly less tolerant and less patient with Christianity and with Christians and our message. Why? Well, I think there are a lot of reasons, but a few things ought to be noted. First of all, you need to understand that Christianity is fundamentally intolerant of any other ideology, unashamedly so. 
We believe that God has spoken and he's spoken clearly in his word. We believe that there is no access to God except through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that the Bible is alone the source of God's revealed knowledge, the revelation of who he is to mankind. We believe that he is exclusive in his description of salvation through Christ and exclusive in his ownership of revelation through the Holy Bible. We are an intolerant bunch, but that doesn't make us an unloving people. The Bible claims that God is to be worshipped exclusively and prescriptively according to its instructions. In fact, the Bible is absolutely crystal clear that only those who have embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ will be able to enjoy heaven and can understand who God is. And the Bible is relentless. It is relentless, page after page and verse after verse, in the proposition that man is woefully, incurably sinful and wicked, and God has made a way to cure that through his son, the Lord Jesus. But that's where the rub comes. The Bible's great solution of Jesus, God become man, laid in a manger, crucified on a cross, rose from a grave. The facts surrounding these events and the logic concerning the cross of Jesus are received as foolishness to the modern enlightened mind, just as they were to that first generation. Those who believe the gospel are considered fools as well. Think about it. It's supernatural. It's illogical. It's fantastical. It's unhuman-like. It's eternal. It's selfless. It is ineffective if you look at the numbers. Islam is growing at a faster rate than Christianity. But ultimately, it's exclusive and it's intolerant, and lovingly so. Yet when the Apostle Paul sums up the message and content of his his preaching, his gospel, his good news in 1 Corinthians 2, he said it was to proclaim and preach a crucified Messiah. Look over at chapter 2, verse 2. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That wasn't a message that that was well received by that first generation. Only criminals found, found themselves on a cross. Who would worship a crucified leader, a crucified hero, a crucified savior? The most noted evangelist of the Great Awakening, George Whitfield, encouraged the people who gathered to hear him preach over and over in fields and in forests. He said, please, never forget the bleeding God and meditate on the agony and bloody sweat of the incarnate God, end quote. That began at Christmas and culminated at Calvary. Forget not a bleeding God. What an interesting word. A bleeding God. What's he saying when he says that? Jesus Christ bled. And if it's a bleeding God, it's an affirmation that Jesus Christ is God. Correct? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead what? 
See, hail incarnate deity. We should expect that the world would push back on that. We should expect that the world would look at this, as Paul describes uh, in this passage, as foolishness, as ridiculous, as illogical. But we should never expect that a Christian should shame, be ashamed of, or back away from the gospel and the bloody nature of a bleeding God But I think that's where we found ourselves. I won't take the time to read you quote after quote of people who say that the idea that God would crucify his son on behalf of believers is not only insane and illogical. One writer says he considers that to be divine child abuse. That God would crucify his son for salvation. Well, we are, as Paul calls us, fools for Christ, if we believe. We are fools for Christ. And he unpacks this on why and how we can trust the foolishness of God. And I say that tongue-in-cheek just as Paul does in this passage. The foolish wisdom of a crucified Messiah over all other ideologies. And we're finding in this passage five reasons to do so. Five reasons to trust the foolishness of a crucified Messiah. We looked at the first two last week. Let me just briefly mention those, and then we'll go on to these last three, okay? The first reason is this, because the cross is wiser than the wisdom of men. The cross is wiser than the wisdom of men. Look at verse 18. The word of the cross, and that word word there, the word that we translate word, the logos, the logic, is the ideology, the reasoning, the wisdom, the logic Kind of translated here, I think the best way to to do this is the reasoning or the reasons or the logic. For the reasons behind the cross, the logic of the cross, a crucified Messiah, is to those who are perishing, that's the world outside of believers, foolishness. It doesn't make sense. It's ridiculous. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Then he goes to Isaiah for good expository credibility here. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. God promised through Isaiah and and fulfilled in the Lord Jesus that every ideology known to man that would offer them hope beyond the grave is utterly madness and foolishness except for God's strange and unexpected notion that he would send his only begotten son to die for the sins of those who would believe and raise him from the dead three days later. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. And we should expect, we should expect that people who hear our gospel message will scratch their heads and say, are you serious? Unless God is working in their hearts. It's wiser than any wisdom scheme that's been put forth. Secondly, we looked at the fact that the cross, second reason, the cross is wiser than the men of wisdom. It's not only the wisdom of men, it's the men of wisdom. And he isolates these these groups of people. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? The wise man were the Greeks. These were the secularists. These were the, the politicians, the philosophers. Where's the scribe? That was the Jewish theologian. 
Where's the debater of this age? These are the men who would stand and sell wisdom, literally sell wisdom and find followers who would believe what they said about the cosmos and the universe and the realities of life and death and the everlasting. We would call these debaters pundits today, the men and women who show up on news shows and give opinions as if they have credibility and authority. They're just there to debate. Paul says, I want to bring all these people, the secularists, the pundits and debaters, the theologians who have yet to embrace God's plan of salvation. I want to bring them to the table. He says, has not God, look at that last phrase, made foolish all of their wisdom? I mean, if you really think about what they have to offer, what is it? You get notions of reincarnation, notions of purgatory, notions of, of uh, doing better and trying harder to impress God so that he'll grade you on a curve and send the bad guys to the bad place and he'll accept you as being north of 50% and you can come home to heaven. He says that's foolishness. The best that man can offer in his wisdom is utter divine foolishness as assessed by heaven. Let's pick it up from last time. We come to our third reason this morning. Our third reason to trust God's foolish wisdom of a crucified Messiah. Number three, because the cross is wiser than the efforts of man. And now we go right back to Paul's understanding of salvation by grace through faith, independent of human works. Because the cross is wiser than the efforts of men. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God... The world through its wisdom did not come to know God. Now this is remarkable. This is God's sovereignty that he is actually over sovereign about, superintending, working within the wisdom of the world and making it intellectually crippled and handicapped to find the truth. And that's his wisdom. His wisdom is that the world will be on an endless cycle of ideas that they would try out and would all utterly fail. There's an old saying that there's no atheists in a foxhole. I think there's something to be said about that. When it comes to the moment of our entrance into eternity, people don't typically call philosophers People don't typically call the pundits. People typically call a preacher or a pastor. They look to a Christian. I know many don't, but the ones who are seeking have an intuitive instinct that someone who knows Jesus knows the truth and can give me help. Paul is explaining here that the world's finest wisdom is unable to find ultimate reality, namely God himself. It will only invent a God in its own image. It's impossible then for the world in its wisdom to come to know God, Paul says. With all of man's supposed wisdom and his ideas, his philosophies, his ideas, he's never been able to know God, much less come into a personal relationship with him. In fact, man's increased knowledge and philosophies only tend to intensify the problems, not solve them. Think about it. Hatred continues to increase in our world. 
Misunderstandings continue to increase. Conflicts and wars increase. Drunkenness increases. Crime increases. Mental breakdowns increase. Family problems increase. And yet we are, according to most, the smartest we've ever been in the history of man. And how has our advancement led to the solving of our most intimate problem of sin? And the answer is it it hasn't. In fact, it's probably only amplified it and giving it further and multiple applications of its expression. I think these things increase not only in numbers but in intensity. The more man looks to himself, the more he leans on his own ideologies, the worse his, solu- his situation becomes. As his independence on human wisdom and resources increases, so does his problems. And interestingly here, Paul says that's God's plan. It's a grace of God that men's ideas about their own salvation don't work. It's a grace. It's a given. He's ordained that philosophies and ideologies would be bankrupt. And that's a grace. Because if they gave any solace, then people would not look toward the gospel So it goes on, look at what he says next. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save, to save those who believe. This goes back to the efforts. He doesn't say to save those who try hard enough, to save those who put enough of their elbow grease into this, to save those who do enough good works. He says saves those. His wisdom is to save those who, what? Believe. Now in the context here, this is really important. Believe what? Believe what? Believe that God accomplished the salvation of sinners by telling them and explaining that if you believe that I will take out my wrath and anger on my own son instead of you and give you his perfect righteousness, if you believe that, I'll save you. The foolishness of the message preached to those who believe. This is salvation by grace alone, through what alone? Faith, believing alone. You know, people are surrounded by evidences of God's wisdom, and they still choose to trust their own. We studied in Romans 1, Paul says they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And that word suppress is like trying to close a, an overstuffed suitcase. You sit on it, you pound on it, you duct tape it, you do anything to get it closed. And that's what people do to stuff their sin away so that they could, their conscience away so that they can be relieved of God's pricking of their own awareness of sin. God has made his Wisdom, Romans 1 says, evident to people that if they look around in the creation, they can see that there is a God, and then that will lead, should lead them to look into the Bible to define that God. My mentor, John MacArthur, writes this. Every time a person looks at a mountain, he should think of God's greatness. Now, we're here in Kansas, so trust that by faith, okay? Every time he sees a sunset, we can appreciate that. He should think of God's glory. Every time he sees a new life come into the world, he should see God's creative hand at work. 
Yet an astronomer can look through his telescope and see 100,000 stars and not see God's greatness. A natural scientist can look through his microscope and see the intricacies of life beyond description and not see God's creation. A nuclear physicist can produce 1,000 megatons of destruction and not recognize God's power, end quote. Wow, it's so true. And know this, God doesn't expect that anyone would look at the world and look at the creation and look at man's wisdom and come to a knowledge of him. He doesn't expect that. He knows they won't. He knows they can't. He was well pleased, it says here, through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. This word message preached is, is all one word in the Greek text. It means the word of the cross. That's the message preached. The content is Jesus Christ himself, we find out in chapter 2, who is the power of God and the wisdom of God, verse 24 says. Look at a fourth reason in verses 22 to 24. Fourth reason to believe in God's wisdom of a crucified Messiah. Because the cross is wiser than the pursuits of men. Their effort can't get there. How about their pursuits? Can they ever chase their own ideas into heaven? The cross is wiser than the pursuits of men. Now it gets personal again. You know, he talked about the, the wise man and the scribe and the pundits. Now he goes to the two main religious categories of the day, the Greeks and the Jews. Indeed, the Jews, the Jews ask for signs. Now we find out what man's looking for. The Jews, they ask for signs. Just show us. The Greeks search for wisdom. Just prove it to us. But we preach Christ. Crucified. And then he explains what these groups of people interpret, how they interpret the crucifixion and the, the message of the cross. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. They trip over it. To the Gentiles, it's ridiculousness. It's foolishness. But, and then he turns to believers. To those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, doesn't matter who they, what their backgrounds are, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The Jews were deeply offended by the cross because it radically violated their expectations and preconceptions of the Messiah. I mean, have a little bit of sympathy for how you would have thought had you been a first century Jew and you had very little contact with Jesus and someone told you, by the way, the Messiah has come. Where? Where? Is he in Rome on the throne? Did he dethrone Caesar? Did he elbow Pilate out of his, his throne room? Where's the Messiah? Well, actually, he died. What? How did he die? It was, um, it was on a Roman cross. What? Just feel that for a moment. All the expectations, all the prophecies of the Old Testament. And to a Jew, you find that this is the long-expected one. Their Messiah was to be a man of great power and honor, not a man who died in the weakness and shame of a Roman execution. 
Why was the cross a scandal to the Jews? Well, Paul tells us here. They were searching for the wrong thing in the Messiah. They, according to verse 22, they were looking for signs. Now, what I find interesting is Jesus gave a lot of signs. During his ministry, he was regularly asked to produce signs as a way of persuading people to believe in him, and he did. Matthew 12, 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered to him, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered them and said, An evil and adulterous generation craves a sign. Matthew 16, 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing him, asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Mark 8, 11, The Pharisees came out and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And deeply sighing in his spirit, Jesus said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. Then he assesses in John 4, 48, Jesus therefore said to him, Unless you people see a sign or a wonder, you simply will not believe. Now, what's interesting is Jesus didn't give signs upon demand, but he did give, did give signs Upon his own prerogative, did he not? Lots of signs. The Jews were not seeking out signs as a sincere desire to see God display his grace and power. They weren't even looking for a way to authenticate the Messiah status of Jesus. Instead, they were looking for signs, miraculous displays, in order to test the Son of God by the standard of their own purity, their own sin-infected minds. They wanted to show. And Jesus didn't meet their expectations. Even though he fed the hungry, healed the lame, gave sight to the blind, and rose the dead. And that wasn't enough. Remember what Jesus said in John? Even if I rise from the dead, they won't believe They won't even believe if they see that sign. The Jews looked for the sign. And it's not in the text here, but can I just be cultural for a minute? The Romans also had expectations, and the cross was offensive to the Jews and to the Romans. The Romans, it was embarrassing. This was the way they dealt with criminals. To the Jews, it was offensive because no man, according to Deuteronomy, would ever be hung on a tree as a blessed person of God because everyone who hung on a tree was what by God? Cursed. It was a scandal to the Jews and an embarrassment to the Romans who did it. The cross was a very concrete and vivid reality. It was very public This wasn't done in an isolated gas chamber or an isolated uh, room where they would give someone a lethal injection or in a room where the cameras were blocked out for an electrocution. This was open and public. Not many years before Jesus and the disciples came to Caesarea Philippi, which was up in the north, where Jesus ministered, 100 men had been crucified in that area. century earlier, Uh, 800 Jewish rebels were crucified at Jerusalem. And after the revolt that followed the death of King Herod, 2,000 Jews were crucified by the Roman proconsul Varius. They were used to the cross, and it was a scandal. 
So to ask Jews to glory in or boast in a cross was something akin to asking a Nazi, a Jew in Nazi Germany, rather, to boast about the gas chamber. Then he isolates the Greeks here. They prized philosophy and wisdom above all else. They gave us Plato and Aristotle and Socrates. This wasn't the practical, kind of skill-driven wisdom of the Old Testament. This was the sophistry, the esoteric rhetoric of reason, the standing around talking and being appreciated for how you say what you say more than the content of what you say. It was about being impressive, being an arguer and winning arguments. So for the Greeks, the idea that the creator and savior of the world would be crucified as a criminal on a cross was absurd. It wasn't wise. How could that be the wisdom of God? And yet Paul says it's the power and the wisdom of God here. The scandal of the cross should have been the greatest news to the Jews who needed a once-for-all sacrifice to cover their sins. The embarrassment of the cross should have been embraced by the Romans as the awesome display of humility of the majestic, majestic and gracious God. And the foolishness of the cross should have been seen as the wisest wisdom to the Greeks because no human mind would ever invent that kind of scheme to save anyone. Why didn't it? Why didn't these appear to these groups as the wisdom of God? Because they were judging God by the wrong criteria. And people do the same today. They have expectations that God would act according to their own instincts and intuition rather than according to Holy Scripture and prophecy. Which leads to the fifth reason in verse 25. Because the cross is wiser than the logic of men. Wiser than the logic of men. Verse 25 says, because this is such an interesting phrase. Just, just feel its impact if you were to read this for the first time. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than man. The foolishness of God. Who, who, says, that, who says that God has anything foolish? You know who does? Paul does. You know why? He's saying this tongue in cheek. He's saying this is the assessment of the world of the gospel. It's foolishness. It makes no logical sense. He says, let me give you that. If it's the foolishness of God, I want to tell you about that foolishness of God. He uses tongue in cheek, sarcasm here. The foolishness of God that you would call it, it's wiser than men. And then he goes on to say another phrase. This compounds it. The weakness of God? The weakness of God? Paul talks about God's weakness. But he does so not as an assessment of God being weak. He does so as a quotation of how the world perceives God as weak. The world would say anyone who would invent a scheme by which people would be saved by believing in a crucified Messiah and Savior and leader... That's weak. Think about how strength was shown in this first century. You had the likes of Alexander the Great, right? 
Caesar, who would go conquer and win and kill and enthrone themselves, have displays of power and armies at their disposal. And yet this one, who had all the angels of heaven at his disposal, willingly laid aside his desire to have that cup taken from him and died at the hand of his own father for the sins of believers. Wow. Paul is not calling God foolish and weak. He's saying the world would assess God as foolish and weak if they look at the cross and don't understand its implications. I do think it's interesting. Can, can we just peek ahead just a bit in this passage? He gets really personal about the strong and weak and foolish thing. And it involves you, by the way. I just want to give you a little advance warning. You're going to be about to be called some names here, so get ready. For consider your calling, he says to the Corinthians and ultimately to us, brethren. Consider your calling, Christian, brother, sister, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty and not many noble, Look at verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things. What's the context here of the foolish things? It's us. We are foolish things. He's chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Who are the wise? The people of the world. God has chosen the weak things of the world. Who, not what, who are the weak things of the world? Guess who they are? Look around. That's us. To shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen. He didn't choose things. He chose people. The things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are. So that no man may boast before God. We are the not many mighty, the not many noble, the not many smart or clever. We are the people that God chooses to save to show us his majesty in us and to the world, not, not his choosing the all-star team here on the planet. Boy, look at verse 30. Look at how it concludes. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. You have your seatbelt tied? Listen to this. You are in Christ Jesus. You who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, just so it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. The cross is only logical. It's only the word, the logic, the reasoning of the cross to those who believe those who are being saved. It's not, it's not something we, it's not something we can sit down with someone across a lunch and say, I'm going to explain this to you and it's going to make so much sense you can do nothing but believe it. And you know what that does? It puts all the glory of salvation with God and not our, our cleverness, our ingenuity, our argumentation because of God's doing you are in Christ Jesus. That is so encouraging. 
So what are the takeaways? Let's be really practical about this. First of all, we shouldn't be surprised when people don't get it. We should never give up if they don't either. Just keep explaining. And the more they push back, the more you smile. The more they, they say that's illogical, the more you smile. The more they say you're crazy, the more you smile. Because it says right here we're fools for Christ. And that's a pretty good place to be a fool. You don't have to win the argument or win the day if you explain the truth. It's in God's hands. By his doing, you are in Christ. So I think the first takeaway is just explain the truth of the gospel. And if you get pushed back, smile and know this is exactly what God said would happen. Paul explained this to us. Secondly, when you look at your own salvation, don't ever forget that you would have never believed this unless God had opened your eyes. And just worship because of that. Yeah, I, I catch myself sometimes thinking, why, yeah, why wouldn't anyone believe this? You're explaining the gospel to a friend, a family member, and you just think, why would you say no to forgiveness? Why would you say no to eternity in heaven? Why would you say yes to hell? Why? This doesn't make any sense that you wouldn't embrace this. It shouldn't make any sense that we did. Except by what he says, verse 30, by his doing you are in Christ Jesus. So look down at chapter 2, verse 14. This makes sense. A natural man, the, thing, the people who are going to reject this, a natural man does not accept the things of God for they are what? <laughs> Foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them. There you go. You know why? They're spiritually appraised, spiritually perceived, spiritually understood, a gift of God. But he who is spiritual, that just means he who has been saved by grace and has been quickened and made alive in the spirit, appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. That's the wisdom of the world who would look to us as foolish. They don't have anything on us. Only God looks at it, what he's done by us. God alone opens the hearts. You know, we said all along in our study of Romans 9, 10, and 11, God's sovereignty and salvation, that no one is really a true Arminian. And by that, I mean anyone who's ever prayed for someone's salvation recognizes in their own heart of hearts without any explanation that God is the one who should open the eyes and quicken the conscience and reveal to the heart what only God can do is saving the soul. Why would you ever pray for God to override the will of someone unless you believe that it's by his doing that someone comes to Christ Jesus? I think everyone really instinctively understands that. Do we instinctively appreciate that? This is the week before Christmas. A lot of thinking about the manger. A lot of thinking about shepherds and stars and John the Baptist and an innkeeper who said, sorry, there's no room. Don't let this be a week where you don't think, my belief in this is an amazing gift of God to believe that it's true. You're also going to be interacting with a lot of family members, a lot of opportunities to share the gospel. Boy, please.
please share it with a smile, share it graciously. And when they say, roll their eyes and say, oh, brother, say, that's okay. And if you'll listen tomorrow, I'll tell you again. And next week, I'll be back with the same message. Next year, next month, call me on your deathbed and I'll tell you the same thing. Why? Because because of his doing, we're in Christ Jesus. He's done it for us. So understand the cross now takes us back where we're going to be next week to understand what happened with a baby who was born and called illegitimate in shame by God's doing. Isn't it interesting that Jesus ended his life with the most public shaming that could be possible? And he began his life in the most public shaming possible in that event as well. Only God would do that, wouldn't he? What a God we have. Let me pray for you.